0: You're listening to the Religion and Fiction Podcast. A podcast for people interested in the intersection of the sacred and story. Offering insight, inspiration, and a bit of entertainment for the journey. I'm your host, Jeremy Bauma. A former pastor and theologian who writes stories under J.A. Bauma. Stories that offer entertaining escape as well as insightful inspiration for the journey. We're back with the Religion and Fiction podcast for another season, and I thought that it would bring you a special author commentary on one of my own books for this spooky October season. Stay tuned. Hey, Religious Fiction readers, welcome to episode 22 and what I would like to call the second season of the Religion and Fiction podcast. After taking a little bit of a break because of some work-related and personal-related reasons, I am back in Rare and to Go to create space to explore the intersection of the sacred and story in a number of ways. One of which is through this podcast, where I hope to bring A bit of reflection on our collective reading experience to tease out some insights and commentary on both the well-known and maybe not so well-known stories that sort of impact our collective conscience in our world. In a few weeks, I want to bring that reflective lens upon one of my own personal favorite authors, Stephen King. It might sound a bit uh, unusual for a former minister to rave uh, about Stephen King and admit that he's one of his favorites. But, yeah, that's true. He is, and there's a number of reasons for that, uh, one of which is... As I've read him, I have really appreciated the lens and perspective he brings on the world as a horror writer. Uh, not so much the early Stephen King horror, but the more recent sp- supernatural suspense books that he has brought to life, uh, particularly with his Mr. Mercedes Private Eye series. And one of the characters that came out of that series is a lady by the name of Holly Gibney. Her story debuted uh, this past month in her own novel titled Holly. And the story as creepy as you can imagine from a Stephen King book, was classic Stephen King. And part of what he brought to bear from a worldview standpoint is something I want to get into in the next episode. On Halloween, perfect day to encounter a Stephen King story on the uh, most frightful day of the year. Today, though, I want to bring a different episode focusing on one of my own frightful tales that I wrote a few years ago called Rite of Darkness. It is the seventh book in my Order of Thaddeus religious conspiracy thriller series and focuses in on a series of frightful events around Halloween that exposes the demonic darkness that actually swirls around us in ways that we don't even realize. Now, with all of my books in this series, there is an author note at the end that brings to light the research and some more of the deeper religious spiritual ideas that went into creating and crafting the story. Recently, I've taken this sort of behind-the-scenes look into my creation process by recording audio commentaries from me walking through the story, giving you my perspective at sort of a chapter-by-chapter level on not only how the story came about, but also the deeper spiritual, religious issues behind the fiction. Today middle of October, leading up to Halloween, I thought that it would bring that audio commentary into this religious fiction podcast. Now, to be warned, there are a few deep, dark issues that I sort of tease out in this commentary, specifically revolving around the occult, exorcism, and demonic possession. So, be forewarned. And also realize that this is a deep dive into the story itself. So if you haven't yet read Rite of Darkness, push pause, grab the book, which is on sale for the month of October for three bucks on all retail platforms. Read it, then come back to enjoy the -the behind-the-scenes look into this frightful tale that I hope will give you some insight into the intersection of the sacred and story. All right, here we go. The audio commentary from Moi on "Right of Darkness. This is meant to be an audio tour of each of the chapters in the book, offering a behind-the-scenes tour of the ideas and concepts that went into the story overall, but especially each individual chapter. So if you haven't yet read the book... Be warned that there are spoilers ahead. You'll probably want to pause this, read the book first, and then come back to fill in the gaps with my own perspective on the story. Just a reminder that this story, Rite of Darkness, is the seventh in my Order of Thaddeus religious conspiracy series. And the Order of Thaddeus is a fictional religious order that stretches back to the founding of the church on the day of Pentecost. Of course, it takes its name from Jude Thaddeus, the traditional name for the author of the book of Jude, which is the uh, second from the last book of the New Testament. Now, back in the day, the apostle Jude had already seen forces working against the nascent Christianity, and penned a letter that we know of as the letter of Jude to early Christians living in Asia Minor. That's the real side of history, and what he said in this letter was that he felt compelled to write and urge them to, as verse 3 says, contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. That's the mission of the order of Thaddeus, to contend for the faith, to preserve the once-for-all faith entrusted to God's holy people, particularly through memory markers or relics and other aspects of Christian doctrine and belief. Of course, over the years, they've had a number of additions to the order, one of which is Project Sepio, an acronym which is taken from the actual Latin word sepio, meaning to surround with a hedge, which was the mission of a certain project called Sepio launched mid 20th century. The goal was to surround the memory of the Christian faith itself with a hedge of protection after several fraught decades of secular challenge to Christianity as a religion and the church as an institution. And its goal was to preserve and protect objects and relics of the faith, as well as the memory itself by retrieving the essential fundamental elements of the vintage Christian faith. So that's a bit of an orientation to the series and the overall organization that we find ourselves in with Book 7, Rite of Darkness. Here's a bit of what I wrote in my concept outline, to give me some direction regarding this story several years ago when I sat down to write it. When I was thinking about the conceptual hooks to draw the reader in and frame the, the book and the story, I wondered what if the demonic and possession was real, as real in our modern world as the ancient world and Jesus's day. One of the primary hallmarks of Jesus's ministry was exorcism. He constantly confronted people who possessed demons, who were possessed by agents of darkness, actual demons who were agents of Satan, the devil. And so I wondered, what if what we've written off as just mental or systemic brain issues was actually demonic? What if These sorts of things were alive and well in our own world, that people were influenced by demonic beings. I wondered, what if the decrease in Christianity and the increase in interest in the occult and paranormal, actually, it was feeding sort of this rise in the demonic? And then, as we'll see in the prologue, what if there was a kernel of truth to the Salem witch trials? And that a remnant survived to wreak havoc in our future. Which sort of frames this story, Rite of Darkness. Which takes us to the prologue. Placing us at the Newberry Falls, Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1687. It becomes quickly clear that the women who are in this chapter are historical. Elizabeth Howe, Elizabeth Proctor, Martha Carrier, all of them were historical figures who were associated with the Salem Witch Trials. We'll get into more detail into the history surrounding this interesting and rather unfortunate event in the history of America, especially the early founding of America. But the prologue basically sets up the fact that there are these survivors or a remnant who then have partnered with the, the basic bad guy entity that is coming against the church and that the Order of Thaddeus has been waging war against from the beginning. Of course, we know them as Noose, right? And all of the trappings of that organization, the Birdman, and the dum diddy dum diddy dum and the, the elements surrounding the organization all appear in this first section of the book, the prologue. And the goal is to set up the fact that there is this wickedness, this visceral evil that has been waging war against not only the world, but also the church. And we find it manifested in this event uh, that I later unpack, the Salem Witch Trials. And again, there's a whole lot of history surrounding this, a lot of which is unfortunate, but I find to be also a rather compelling case for uh, an actual something going on. <laughs> I know that's very vague, uh, but it does seem that there was some sort of wickedness, demonic uh, activity surrounding this colony and some of the people who were involved with the events surrounding the Salem Witch Trials. I don't advocate at all the outcome of those trials, uh, especially the the burnings and the hangings, uh, but there is, I think, from the historical record, which we'll look at in a bit, uh, some validity and truth to what was happening in that colony that you could say legitimately was wicked, evil, demonic. Speaking of wicked, evil, demonic, (laughs) the book opens with... All three, because uh, Silas, Celeste, and Gapinski are at a movie theater watching what uh, was going to be a nightmare on Elm Street, but I didn't want to get into issues surrounding copyright and legalities with the film, and so instead uh, it, they're watching a nightmare on Maple Creek Road uh, featuring Kevin Frazier, which if you switch those first two letters around... F and K, you have Freddy Krueger, which of course was the main character of uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and created my own fictitious movie with the fictitious uh, main character, who who was the psychopath with the razor gloves, right? And there they are watching the film, and all of a sudden, what do we hear? The rat-a-tat-tat of uh, gunmen storming into the theater. Of course, chaos ensues as well as a gunfight and they take out the guy who they later discover a mystery man who is a white Caucasian man with a necklace made of bones around his neck. He's got a pentagram tattoo sporting a Jansport backpack and inside we've got some craziness including a, an animal missing his head. We've got candles and lavender and rosemary and sage and a uh, hardback bound book with a bunch of pages singed at the edges. So there's a whole lot of stuff going on with this guy. They don't know at all what to do with it. All they know is that it smacks of witchcraft. And, uh, and from there, they think that they might have a case in their hands. But, of course, they need to skedaddle from the movie theater, just as the authorities are coming up on the crime scene, a counter-terrorism unit that they get taken down by. And uh, we come to find out that the lead agent of this task force is one of Silas's old girlfriends, Brittany Armstrong. And she's not at all buying what the the trio is putting down regarding this guy who busted into this movie theater, and they think that there is a connection to witchcraft, or at least some sort of wicked demonic element to the case. Uh, of course, Brittany writes them off and releases them, to which they leave and return back to the Order of Thaddeus headquarters. Now, a little side note, uh, if you've read any of my other Books, especially the Group X Cases series, you'll know that the very first case uh, uh, that Elijah Fox and Gina Anderson have features Britney Armstrong. Won't give the details of that plot away, but it's a fun little Easter egg and connection to the past story and the future story that I wanted to include because I liked her character so much. And that brings us to chapter four, where we find Rowan Radcliffe sitting in a chapel in the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, which is America's largest Roman Catholic Church, anchored in Northeast D.C. Now, the reason why they're there is because uh, they're waiting for their main headquarters to be renovated after the previous book, Templars Rising, saw an unfortunate demise to their uh, headquarters beneath the National Cathedral. Won't go into details of that story in case you haven't read it yet, Uh, but they've taken temporary leave of those headquarters over to these new ones in an old outpost in the basement of this uh, Catholic church. And there's Rowan Radcliffe having his prayer time and Bible reading time, and he comes to Mark 5, the story of Jesus healing the Gerasenes demoniac. And there's a line in there that is super important to the book and the overall themes of *Rite of Darkness, and that is the wickedness of the human heart knows no bounds, as do the schemes of the devil himself. One of the themes that I'm trying to play with in this book is that dynamic between the evil that people themselves perpetuate in the world, but also the influence that Satan has over the human heart and over the wickedness in the world. And uh, whether or not there is a real wicked presence, a demonic presence that wages war, I think there is, and how that manifests itself. And whether or not we're even clued into this other unseen realm, which has become uh, one of my themes that I've touched on quite a bit in the other books in this series, but especially my supernatural suspense mystery series, Group X Cases. Diving into the realities of the Unseen Realm and the ways in which the principalities and powers wage war. And so here is Rowan beginning to set the stage for what is to come. And, of course, in Walk, the trio. And they recount their story at the movie theater. Rowan wonders whether or not there is something to this and something bigger and larger to what is happening here with this intrusion of evil into their world When they get a knock on the door, figuratively speaking, of a long lost friend of Rowan's, a Father Gabriel DeMonte. Now, the two of them knew one another back in the day at the Congregation of Faith and Doctrine in Boston, and had done a number of things together, including exorcisms. Now, one of the primary sources I used for this book was the book The Right, The Making of a Modern Exorcist by Matt. Baglio. This was later made into uh, a movie featuring Anthony Hopkins, who I used as sort of a model for my DeMonte character. And everything that you find in this book that he describes from his experiences as an exorcist and treating people who he suspected were possessed by demons basically came from this book as well as a few other sources to help us understand better the reality that there is this oppression coming against people in the world, that we as moderns sort of dismiss both Christian moderns as and just uh, religiously interested moderns, but maybe not committed, uh, people in general just sort of demiss- dismiss the spiritual, right? Uh, it's all about the natural, the seen, the tangible, the the secular, if you will. And we don't give any sort of uh, thought to this other realm with other beings that have influence over our world. And I'll tell you that in my writing of this story myself, I remember being very uh, convicted and very sort of blown away by the first person testimonies of people who have actually experienced these firsthand uh, whether themselves as, uh, as self-proclaimed Christians or uh, witnessing others experience this oppression and possession by f- the forces of darkness and the, the, the testimony of uh, priests and even lay pastors who have taken this ministry upon themselves to release people from this oppression. Now, the uh, Sepio agents really don't know what to think about all this, and uh, they understand that there might be something demonic and wicked involved, but the idea of, you know, spinning heads in pea soup as uh, the tropes from The Exorcist, right, the movie, uh, the, all those trappings of Hollywood, they can't imagine that that would be part of their own actual reality. Until Brit shows up again at the headquarters of The Order of Thaddeus and presents the clear indication that Noose is involved with the telltale signs of the tattoo. The uh, the phoenix bird tattoo, right? That uh, is kind of a mainstay of the series. And that ratchets things higher for The Order's involvement. Now they realize that maybe there's something to this that they need to pay attention to. Especially when... DeMonte recognizes the individual who was the psychopath who came into the uh, movie theater, a Roland Vandermolen. And this guy had been treated by the exorcist and later ended up missing. This chapter highlights a number of other important aspects of the exorcist ministry, especially uh, the psychiatric evaluation with mental health professionals to make sure that this isn't actually a schizophrenic episode or a a person suffering from dissociative disorder. One of the things that I think is super important when it comes to the idea of possession and, uh, and the demonic is that there really are actual medical issues that people suffer through mentally. And uh, exorcists who are involved in this ministry take great pains to make sure that this isn't a mental health issue or a medical issue that somebody is suffering from, but instead a spiritual one. And the rest of the chapter unpacks this reality and a lot of the aspects of uh exorcism and possession until the crew recognizes that hey they need to check out this body they need to go to the uh, fbi field office to see what the heck is going on here to see if they can see for themselves who this guy is and dig deeper into this case to bring some sort of resolution but of course in between in chapter nine we have rudolph borg making his face known, and he is on the move <laughs> and uh, readying to not only wreak havoc on the order, but of course uh, the world in general to bring about this evil, to destroy uh, the church, but also to impact humanity. We're not sh- quite sure what's going on yet. There are these vague references to an excavation project. We're not sure where he is, although later we find out that he is on uh, Mackinac Island, which I'll give you some more insight into why I chose that location later when we get there, and the, the personal connection there. Uh, but in the meantime, Sebastian of course is involved, and they are digging up what we later discover are to be these bones from the women who were executed during the Salem witch trials, and they are seeking to tap into this energy surrounding these witches, to bring them into the present, to uh, unveil an evil within the world to wreak havoc, right? Um, But we're not quite there yet, and in the meantime, we're on our way to the FBI field office to take a look at this body, and we get a bit of insight into Celeste Bourne's backstory, who herself had a bit of dabbling with uh, wickedness and evil. And to showcase this, I reference maybe a a bit of a trope when it comes to these sort of things, but the Ouija board. And uh, there are a lot of opinions surrounding this, what some would call just a board game, others would call a portal into the uh, demonic unseen realm, Um, But for Celeste, in her story, that's what that is. It's a portal for her into this other aspect of reality that uh, we determine and find out later actually opened up a sort of a foothold in her heart for the devil to, uh, well, we'll we'll get to that in the next chapter, because I think that some people might have been very caught off guard by what happens, and uh, I want to unpack that a bit more. So here they are, off to the FBI field office, and what happens? The devil shows himself, right? First in Roland's body, uh, sort of this presence comes out and then infects, if you will, Celeste, which is quite remarkable to think about. And there's there's a lot of opinions surrounding uh, whether or not people who are Christians, people who've committed themselves to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, can be oppressed and even possessed in this sort of way. I am sort of on the fence with that. Um, Obviously, the Catholic Church has a very strong view that, yes, that's possible. Uh, Protestants, not as much believing that uh, we are filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore cannot be impacted in that sort of filling and possession that uh, non-believers can. I wonder about that because you find, and I I reference this elsewhere in the book, as well as the author note, that we find people who had been following Christ actually possessed by Satan, filled with Satan. Obviously, Judas is one of those prime examples. Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts is another one where Peter basically calls them out for their sin uh, as being filled with Satan and being... Drug away by him. Peter himself, leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus warned of him being sifted by Satan. And in many ways, not possessed in the same way that Judas definitely was, he uh, was dragged away by the temptation of the devil to deny Jesus leading up to his death on the cross. And so I'm persuaded by the biblical evidence, but also just the testimony Uh, of people who have committed to following Christ, who are Christians, who have experienced crazy episodes that we find on display here at the FBI field office right here in chapter 12. Uh, This is basically a mirror uh, of what a demonic episode, a possession episode looks like, taken, I believe, from... Either uh, another book called An Exorcist Explains the Demonic or the Rite Itself. But either way, it mirrors what happens when somebody is possessed and the devil rises up within someone. And uh, DeMonte's response is very real to the way an exorcist would handle that sort of uprising of the devil within someone. And so you get kind of a front row seat of, of what that looks like in the life of someone, as well as in uh, the exorcist ministry, when a priest or or a pastor or lay minister confronts the devil with the power of prayer and scripture. Of course, they have barely any time to recover when uh, noose comes for the body, and to disrupt the order from having uh, the evidence they need to link what is going on with Roland, Vandermolen, to the larger designs of Rudolf Borg and Noose for the world. In the meantime, there are more psychopaths raging throughout the country. Uh, Detroit, Chicago, Milwaukee, now Toronto, outside the U.S. And it looks like there is what DeMonte had uh, mentioned back at the headquarters, the outpost there, the temporary headquarters of the Order of Thaddeus, a, uh, a, a possession cell. That was kind of an innovation of mine um, based on the research that I had done, and I thought it was an interesting way to talk about the the blooming and rising wickedness in our country a, throughout, in various ways, um, but in this very localized way. And it seems to be centered on the great state of Michigan, my great state. And we'll recognize why that is the case in a little bit. But uh, in the meantime, there are more of these incidences across the country. And as they return back to the Order headquarters, we have now Celeste in Chapter 15 unfolding her story. More of what she experienced uh, as a teenager And then on into college, which I actually unpack in another short story in my short story collection called Backstories. So if you're interested in having a front row seat into that experience of Celeste when she was a child, a teenager, headed off to a Halloween party, you should check that out. Uh, But anyway, we have Celeste, and then she experiences an actual Ministry of Exorcism right there in Rowan's study. And what we find here in chapter 15, I won't go into the details of what unfolds there, but again, this is very reflective of an actual exorcism that a priest would perform. From the rites to the prayers to even the 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 evil and the voice that rises up within her, all taken from the rite because I wanted it to be authentic and really mirror the lived experiences of a whole lot of people. Now, when this exorcism ministry concludes, we have another clue that rises up from Brit, who returns to bring some interesting news regarding the DNA of the bone necklace that was around Roland's neck. And it comes from somebody from the 17th century. Obviously, if you've read the book by now, you know this was from Elizabeth Howe, who was one of the women who were accused of being a witch, put on trial during the Salem witch trials, and then hung. Now this sets off our intrepid sepio operatives on a quest to learn more about the history surrounding these sets of bones, but also what happened in Salem, and how those bones and that woman and the other women could be connected to what now is happening in the 21st century. I used a couple of books to dive deeper into the history surrounding these so-called witches, one of which is called The Witches, Salem, 1692 by Stacy Schiff, and then the other was Six Women of Salem by Marilyn Roach. And all of what we find later in these chapters from 18, 19, I think 20, Uh, all come from these books. One of the more interesting primary sources I used was from Cotton Mather, who wrote an interesting first-person account of those trials and all of the events surrounding the crazy goings-on in uh, Salem and the surrounding area. Now, I'll tell you, reading his first-person account on top of the two books diving into the history surrounding those trials really persuaded me that something bigger than just scapegoating was going on here. I think there was some of that. There were a lot of unknowns surrounding the late 17th century, especially the the chaos surrounding their lives as these pilgrims who had started these new cities in this new uncharted territory who were plagued by pestilence and harsh winters and the native americans raiding them all right so there was probably a whole lot of psychology and personal angst and communal angst surrounding what was going on in these towns in the late 17th century but As we see from these chapters and the history surrounding these events, there's also more going on than simply schizophrenic episodes or freaked-out colonists, (laughs) all right? Regardless, we got Sapio at the outpost in Boston, Massachusetts, conducting their research, and of course, news shows itself again, trying to sidetrack their operation and their research. Sepio comes out on top, of course, but not before Sebastian makes his own appearance and is very disinterested in whether or not his brother, Silas, survives. Now, this becomes an ongoing theme throughout the rest of the book, and we're going to be coming to a climax in that relationship very soon. We're at book 12 now, and a bunch of things happen in this one that will come to a resolution in book 13 very shortly. Uh, But in the meantime, Silas is a bit beside himself that his brother is ready to let him die. Of course, we've come to find out that Sebastian has been conducting his own research in the surrounding area, uncovering the bones of those Salem witches. Silas and the rest of the Sepio operatives discover where they are and go after them only to suffer a rather unfortunate reversal because one of their own gets captured, kidnapped, Celeste. That sends Silas reeling, as you can imagine, and sends us towards the climax of the story where we have a bit of revelation into the backstory of Silas and Sebastian as well. He goes into a childhood story recalling his dad's reiteration of how messed up their family tree was, that there was this deal with the devil with one of their relatives, Mary Warren. Now, this was a historical woman who lived on, you guessed it, Mackinac Island, and was buried in St. Anne's Cemetery up there on Mackinac Island. Now, this is where we get to uh, sort of the personal choice that I made telling the story, because Mackinac Island, matters to my family because it's been a sort of resort island that we have gone to for goodness years (laughs) growing up here in west michigan my family took my sister and i there quite often for summer trips and then when i got married to my wife we have taken almost every anniversary trip there it's this magical place that is in the uh northern part of Michigan, right there between the Upper Peninsula and the Lower Peninsula in Lake Huron. And you can only get to it by a boat. There are no cars. There are just horses and buggies and a whole lot of fudge, (laughs) as uh, you discover when the crew gets to the island to rescue Celeste. Uh, But anyway, I, I thought that that would be a great location for the end of the story and obviously for Sebastian and Silas, that was also a very personal place for them as kids. They had gone to it with their dad and they had the personal connection with the family member. And so Sebastian, along with Rudolph Borg is trying to conjure up this evil, this wickedness in the world by bringing these bones to a cemetery in the middle of the Island where they have Celeste held hostage, using her as a sacrifice to the devil himself. And all the locations in the story are actual locations on the island that have been near and dear to my heart. So we've got St. Anne's Church, the original Catholic missions on the island that of course goes up in flames as a sort of diversion to what's going on deeper inside the island. You've got the main street where you have the main drag of festivities with Dowd's Market. I love Dowd's Market. You got uh, all just snacks and sandwiches and bottles of wine, and it's basically the grocery store for the island community of the people who live there and work there, but also the tourists. Uh, Then there's Cindy's Riding Stable, which uh, becomes important for the mission because they rent some horses to go trotting off to go find Celeste. And it's also where my wife and I have uh, rented a buggy to drive our kids around the island (laughs) when we've taken our kids. We've rented a horse and buggy and have taken them into the interior of the island, which is super fun. Then, of course, you've got the Fudge Shops, which Gapinski is super interested in, and some of the bed and breakfasts there. I name uh, the Harbor View bed and breakfast right there on the Straits of Mackinac with a beautiful view of the water and the Mackinac Bridge. So just a bit of a travelogue there of uh, a resort island that is near and dear to my family that I decided to use in this story. Because, hey, it's my story, and I get to do these things. Uh, But it also... I thought, would make the perfect location for this haunted tale. Because in the fall time, man, in the in the interior, when the lights go down, it, it gets very spooky and very scary. In fact, there are these tales of haunted goings-on throughout the island. Uh, ghost stories and tales of the walking dead that are reported on the island. And so I thought that it would make the perfect location for... The end of the story, and here we come, barreling towards the end, where you've got Celeste readied as a sacrifice to the devil himself in the middle of a cemetery deep into the island, and a ceremony that she is getting ready to participate in, thanks to Sebastian and his lover Helen, is what's known as a black mass. A black mass is a distortion of the actual mass that has been crafted by actual Satanists as a worship service to the devil. Everything that I used in chapter 29, and I think it's also chapter 30, to make that Wicked ceremony come to life is reminiscent of what actually happens in this satanic rite. Of course, the book title is "Rite of Darkness," and that gets to really this sort of duality that we find and these characters experience in the story. Both the rite, which is what the exorcism rite is called, the rite uh, to. Extricate from people the darkness, the devil himself, as well as this dark rite uh, of the black mass, which Satanists willingly and enthusiastically participate in. And there is Celeste, tied down, ready to be sacrificed to Satan in order to serve the wicked designs of Noose, Rudolf Borg, and Sebastian. Of course, Silas and Kapinski come riding into the rescue, literally to save Celeste from death and certain doom. In the meantime, we have another episode of the devil rising up within someone, and that someone we discovered is Rudolf Borg. He channels the voice, capital V, who I imagine is Satan rising up within this man who is possessed by an actual evil and by Satan himself. Again, everything that happens in the these chapters, 29 and chapter 30, when it comes to the right of darkness, <laughs> the black mass, as well as the right of exorcism that DeMonte Monte performs to release Celeste from the clutches of Satan, but also combat Satan directly, literally going hand-to-hand with the voice, Satan, coming out of Rudolf Borg. This is all authentic and real to what people who have been possessed would experience, as well as the kind of Spiritual combat, if you will, that exorcists and ministers engage in to stand against the darkness. Speaking of darkness, the end of the story takes a rather dark and tragic turn <laughs> because two things happen that are important for the rest of the series. Uh, one of which is Rudolf Borg dies. He is killed by Rowan Radcliffe, the hero of the story, who saves the day, right, by saving Celeste and saving Silas and Gapinski from no uncertain doom. And in the meantime, we have another episode of The Voice sort of jumping from Borg to someone that you might not have expected, or maybe did, uh, if you've been paying attention to the story and the series. And of course, that was Sebastian. Uh, he starts screaming a, a frantic, hysterical howl. His eyes bulge from their sockets and mouth goes wide with horrifying abandon. And we realize that it's not quite over because here we now have Sebastian who is possessed by the devil. And he almost wins, but Damante comes to the rescue now, and has a final showdown with the devil, literally incarnated, if you will, within Sebastian, and this makes the series go in an important direction, because the next several books that follow, of course, Sebastian rises to basically take over from Rudolf Borg as the Grandmaster of Noose. And several things happen in the story of Sebastian to bring him to uh, a very important milestone in his journey, uh, but also the series. And if you've read uh, Fallen Ones and the latest one, Book 12, which is The Eden Legacy, you'll know some of what, happens in his story and the series and the next book in book 13 uh will basically resolve a lot of what has been happening up until this point uh so that's one of those dark turns is the death of borg and the in many ways the death of sebastian with him finally giving himself over to the dark side if you will to use that language but also we also have the tragic end of rowan radcliffe And that ending, I did not see coming until probably three quarters of the way. I began to sense that maybe this is where the story was going to end. And this is a sort of a pivotal moment in the life of the Order, uh, but also the life of Silas. Because as we see, he has been gifted and willed the position of Order Master taking over from Rowan Radcliffe in the same way that Sebastian took over from Rudolf Borg. This sets up a classic duel between brothers <laughs> moving forward, which has been sort of a, the case in the series leading up to this point. But now the, the series ratchets higher into this Cain and Abel duel, between these two brothers who represent uh, the darkness and the light, good and evil. Some of these themes which are classic to the series, but classic to this kind of storytelling. And I hope that this turn made sense and didn't disappoint too many of you who were uh, invested in the character of Rowan Radcliffe. I myself was, and, and I think that his ending was really important to his own life, Here's a man who had given himself for decades in service of the church and in service of the order and and his agents and literally laid down his life for his agents in order to save them from death and save the world and the church from wickedness and evil. But even in the midst of the darkness, there is a... Speck of light that I wanted to include in this particular story that will get resolved in a a few more stories down the road, but that, of course, is Silas's proposal to Celeste to ask for her hand in marriage. And it's funny because we probably saw this coming for a couple books now, Uh, but he finally gets the courage to do what he should have done books ago, maybe. (laughs) some of you might've thought. And Celeste feels the same way. She says, about bloom and time, you come calling for my hand? Yes, yes, I'll marry you. And of course the two fall into one another with giddiness and uh, passion and they embrace right there in the middle of the cemetery which I thought was a, a fitting end to a rather tragic, dark story. Now, it will take a few more books for them to actually get married, and that uh, wedding ceremony doesn't actually come until a novella that falls between two of my big novels, Fallen Ones and The Eden Legacy, and in between that, I wrote a novella on their wedding story called Till Death Us Depart, and in classic... Order of Thaddeus, Sepio fashion, there is a whole lot of chaos ensues, so if you're interested in that story, you should grab the book and get the lowdown on their wedding. So in the middle of the darkness, there is a ray of light with the hope of this new life with Silas and Celeste. But before the book ends, we jump forward to the end of the book, chapter 32, the funeral service of Rowan Radcliffe, and Silas is headlining this service. And in this story, I actually drew from my own experiences as a former pastor conducting funerals for for people who were part of my congregation. And that line that I used to close the funeral service is one that I myself have used with others. Uh, As Silas said, yes, this day we mourn the loss of our son and brother and friend, but we do not grieve like the rest of the world because we have hope. We believe that death has been defeated through Christ's death on the cross and through his resurrection. And Rowan's hope is our hope. Along with our dear brother, we will be with the Lord forever. Amen. Amen. And that's the hope, even in the midst of the darkness, uh, the darkness we find all around us in many different ways. Whether the very tangible darkness that's consuming our world right now from the other side of the pandemic and the economic chaos and the, the wars going on across the world, it, it can feel very dark and is very dark. Uh, on top of the actual darkness invading through various pockets of our culture and our even personal lives. It can feel very hopeless. But part of what I wanted to, to do in the story was remind us that one, yeah, there is a very tangible wickedness in the world that we need to stand against. But we stand against that wickedness and darkness in the hope of Christ. And I hope that each of us can do just that. And the way we do that is the way that Silas and Celeste and Gapinski continue doing just that at the end of the story. Celeste grabs his hand and reminds him that we'll continue fighting the good fight and contending for the Christian faith together. May each of us who have committed our lives to Jesus Christ join them in that same effort. Contending for the once for all faith entrusted to God's holy people fighting the good fight, standing against the darkness in whatever way that darkness comes against us, our families, our community, and our culture. All right, hope you enjoyed exploring the intersection of the sacred and story by exploring the the behind-the-scenes to my own supernatural dark tale, Rite of Darkness. In a few weeks, we'll extend that exploration by taking a deep dive into Stephen King's own frightful perspective while also bringing in a biblical understanding of our horrific nature and the hope that God offers us. Until then, happy reading.